Immigration is not just a link to America's past. It's also a bridge to America's future. Hi, everyone. My name is Tejas Shaw, and I am an immigration attorney based in Chicago. And I'm Kalpana Pedibotla. And like Tejas, I too am an immigration attorney, and I am based out of the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to our second episode in our series, Immigration Chats with Tejas and Kalpana. In our first episode, we discussed the U.S. president's authority to regulate immigration and to bar certain groups of immigrants. In that episode, we discussed Travel Ban 3.0, the Supreme Court decision in that case entitled Trump v. Hawaii, and President Trump's proclamations to bar immigrants in the wake of COVID-19. We primarily focus on a president's justifications for barring immigrants, where there is a stated national security interest for doing so. In a parting shot during the final days of his presidency, President Trump extended his proclamation barring immigrants based upon economic justifications. In this episode, we will explore whether immigrants truly harm the U.S. economy and whether a president should use their executive authority to bar immigrants using this justification. We have an exciting series of interviews lined up, so buckle up. American history contains multiple examples of immigration restrictions based on economic reasons. For example, President Herbert Hoover essentially suspended immigration into the U.S. by expanding public charge guidelines in 1931 as the Great Depression raged on. His administration also played a significant role in deporting or encouraging the repatriation of approximately half a million Mexican workers. Herbert Hoover's executive order in the early 1930s set a major precedent for executive action in immigration. The Hoover administration would only issue visas to people who could self-support themselves in the U.S. In 1931, for the first time in U.S. history, the outflow of residents going to other countries from the United States was higher than the influx of immigrants into the U.S. Of course, this executive order had mixed results. Instead of mitigating the recession and high unemployment, many historians have concluded that the executive order at best had a neutral impact and at worst, in fact, harmed Americans' wages and job opportunities. Further, President Hoover's executive order posed a direct contradiction to established immigration law, something that has been a theme in recent years. This economic justification by the Hoover administration is remarkably similar to President Trump's proclamations in 2020 to bar certain immigrants on the claim that their entry during COVID-19 and the economic fallout would harm U.S. workers. As a reminder to our listeners, President Trump issued a proclamation on April 22, 2020, seeking to restrict family reunification, claiming that doing so would protect U.S. jobs. In addition, on June 22, he issued another proclamation suspending the entry of immigrants in the H-1B, H-2B, J, and L visa categories, along with their dependent family members. And in the final days of his administration, these restrictions were extended by President Trump on December 31, 2020. Yes, and so we see this recurring idea that decreasing immigration to the United States will protect American jobs. It actually has a name, this theory. It is referred to as the lump of labor fallacy, and it's this belief that there is a set of finite limit on the amount of work available in a society. Most economists, though, do not support this theory. 
I love that term, the lump of labor fallacy. It seems like that concept was used by President Trump for his 2020 immigration bars. So as you may recall from our first episode, the Supreme Court decided in the travel ban litigation that rational basis was the test for analyzing the president's ban on immigrants. In that case, the Supreme Court stated that the president need only demonstrate that his action is rationally related to a legitimate government interest. And I think that is precisely the issue to be debated. Whether President Trump's 2020 bars on immigrants such as high-tech workers, educators, multinational executives, managers, and certain family members of U.S. citizens, including their elderly parents, is rationally related to his administration's stated aim of protecting the U.S. labor force and growing the economy. So to shed some light on this question, let's turn to an expert on the impact of immigration on our economy, Professor Giovanni Perry from the University of California at Davis. Thank you, Tejas. Good morning, and thank you for having me here talking to you. My name is Giovanni Perry, and I am professor of economics at the University of California, Davis. I have been doing research for about 20 years, uh, focusing on the determinants and the consequences, the impact of immigration on the U.S. economy, on European economy. And I am the founder and the director of the UC Davis Global Migration Center, which is a multidisciplinary center with people doing research and policy-relevant advice and research on topics of migration, immigration, uh, immigration policies. And we have been also uh, conducting research on these themes uh, for the last uh, six years with this uh, Global Migration Center. Great. Well, thank you so much for that introduction, Professor Perry. One of the research pieces that you are well known for is your research publication on STEM workers, H-1B visas, and productivity in U.S. cities. You also address certain misconceptions in this research publication and some of your subsequent research and writings. So I was hoping you could tell me a little more about this publication and the notions that people are often taken with. Yes. So in this publication, I look at the impact on the U.S. economy and on U.S. jobs of skilled foreign workers who are mainly working in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math uh, type of jobs. And I tackle head on the idea that many people have that uh, immigrant coming will take away some jobs from natives. Uh, The idea that is that there is a fixed number of jobs uh, in the American economy and if you have a another person taking uh, them, a foreigner taking them, there are not enough jobs for Americans. This uh, idea is wrong, is scientifically very misguided, because the key point is that jobs are not in fixed amount in an economy. But most importantly, these highly skilled immigrants are really crucial in helping and stimulating innovation, technological progress in the U.S., because a large part of them work in science, in engineering, in innovation. And when you innovate, you generate new ways to make things. You generate new products, new ideas that open up new markets that didn't even exist before. So highly skilled immigrants coming in generate what economists call a job multiplier at the local level, generate opportunities for other jobs. And so not only the economy is not a fixed sum game, but when these people come in, they in fact expand and generate opportunity for others. So where does this misguided concept come from, Professor Perry? 
Yes, this idea is very simple, and I think its appeal comes from how easy it is and comes from the fact that makes you think that jobs are like chairs. They're out there in a room. And when more people come in a room, if this number of chairs is fixed, some people is going to be left standing because there are not enough of them. Now, this concept, which call lump of labor fallacy, is not taught in any econ class because it's not correct, because an economy does not have a fixed number of jobs, given that it's growing continuously and firms and employers are generating jobs. Because immigrants, first and foremost, come and generate opportunity for jobs, generate demands for jobs. How? As I said before, they are consumers, they are investors. Most importantly, they are innovators. They are people who push the frontier of technology, generate opportunities. More often than not, you see that immigrants have a net positive effect on jobs, and certainly highly skilled immigrants have a significant positive effect on jobs because they increase demand for labor on top of being an increase in supply. President Trump issued the two proclamations that we've been discussing, claiming that they would protect U.S. workers and the economy. However, multiple lawsuits were brought against these proclamations, claiming the exact opposite. The second of these was brought by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the National Manufacturing Association, both of which have traditionally aligned themselves with the Republican Party. This lawsuit claimed that the president's justifications were contradicted by all established economic research and appear to have been created out of whole cloth and without any consideration of the issues. Further, they argued that the temporary visa categories for HL and J visas already included several safeguards aimed at protecting U.S. workers while allowing American businesses the liberty to grow and remain competitive by securing global talent. A federal district court in Northern California agreed with the plaintiffs and blocked the government's restriction. While the court's decision extended only to the plaintiffs in that lawsuit, the decision specifically distinguished the president's wide-ranging authority over immigration policy involving foreign interests from actions involving purely domestic considerations. The federal district court concluded that unlike the Muslim ban, which was the subject of our previous podcast, this proclamation did not involve American foreign policy interests, and the president could not entirely suspend the immigration law scheme that Congress had created. The court's decision essentially affirmed that the president is not a monarch and his actions violated the separation of powers. Since H-1Bs sometimes get a bad reputation, I think it is helpful to review how the legislation came about. The H-1B visa has its roots in the H-1 visa of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952. Its present form, though, was created by the Immigration Act of 1990 with bipartisan support, something you don't hear of too much these days. Let's listen to what Republican Congressman Ham Fish and Democratic Congressman Chuck Schumer, who both sponsored the bill in the House, had to say. As you were told, this started about 10 years ago and uh, has received the attention of the United States Senate on three separate occasions. They passed legal migration reform. It's been worked on in the House for the last few years. And what we've come up with, I think, is quite a remarkable piece of legislation. It, it has the support of Republicans as well as Democrats in the House and the Senate. This bill is based on a premise, and that is that immigrants are good for America. 
they give a lot more to America than they take from America. And as we enter the 21st century, as we're in an era of economic competition with friendly rivals like Germany and Japan, we need the vitality, the intelligence, and the special skills that immigrants bring to our country and have brought for the last 200 years. This bill says that if you have a skill that America needs, we're going to accept you. The 1990 Act had three major tenets. The first was related to immigration enforcement. The second was the introduction of the diversity lottery to encourage foreign nationals from countries that are not significantly represented in the U.S. to immigrate. And the third was introduction of the H-1B visa. It was ultimately signed into law by a Republican president, George Herbert Bush. In the next clip, we have excerpted President Bush Sr.'s remarks from that day focusing on the aspects of employment-based immigration contained in the Act. Today I am pleased to sign S-358, the Immigration Act of 1990. It is the most comprehensive reform of our immigration laws in 66 years. And nearly all Americans have ancestors who brave the oceans, liberty-loving risk-takers in search of an ideal. Immigration is not just a link to America's past. It's also a bridge to America's future. This bill provides for vital increases for entry on the basis of skills, infusing the ranks of our scientists and engineers and educators with new blood and new ideas. And now I am honored and pleased to sign into law the Immigration Act of 1990. Kulpana, you alluded to the fact that in the three decades since the creation of the H-1B visa, it has also developed a significant number of opponents. There are a few instances widely reported in the news where U.S. workers have alleged that employers have replaced them with H-1B workers who they claim are paid a lower salary. One of the primary academics focusing on this issue is Professor Ron Hira at Howard University. Interestingly, Professor Hira is himself the son of first-generation immigrants to the U.S. from India. Let's have a listen to his testimony about the H-1B program to the U.S. Senate in 2014, when the Senate was considering and subsequently passed a comprehensive immigration reform bill. Through high-skilled immigration, we have the potential of attracting the best and brightest from around the world, and more importantly, keeping them here. But much of our policy effort is misguided. It's been focused mostly on expanding guest worker programs rather than permanent immigration. I will focus my remarks today on the deeply flawed H-1B program. Right now, the majority of the H-1B program is being used to hire cheap indentured workers. The bulk of demand for H-1B visas is being driven by the desire for lower-cost workers, not a race for specialized talent or a shortage of American talent. The results show this. All of the top 10 H-1B employers last year used the program principally to outsource American jobs to overseas locations. Outsourcing firms received the majority of H-1B visas issued last year. Globalization and outsourcing will happen, but we shouldn't be subsidizing and promoting it through flawed guest worker policies. Outsourcing is only the most visible and obvious symptom of the underlying problems. Program misuse is widespread even beyond the outsourcing firms. This is due to two fundamental problems. First, H-1B workers are cheaper than American workers. And second, American workers do not have a first and legitimate shot at jobs and, in fact, can even be replaced by H-1B workers. Simply put, 
there's no shortage necessary before hiring an H-1B worker. So how does this happen? First off, Congress sets the wage floor, and it is far too low. H-1B workers can be paid 20 to 25 percent less than an American worker. And there's no requirement for employers to look for American workers before hiring an H-1B. Employers can even displace American workers. This is, again, in the law itself. So here we have it. The root of the issue is whether immigrants harm the U.S. economy by undermining wages or if they are innovators and gap fillers who create opportunities for U.S. workers. Two very different points of view and clearly not a debate that is new. If I'm being completely upfront, I've seen individual instances that appear to support both of these points of views. Kalpana, what about you? Well, I think, Tejas, that this discussion might need to be reframed, though, around our expectations for H-1B workers. Are they expected in every instance to be brilliant innovators? Shouldn't we also acknowledge that some workers are performing at the lower rungs of the STEM fields, but that too serves a vital purpose by fulfilling a business need? And since Congress was trying to thread a balance between business priorities, job growth, and protecting U.S. workers, Isn't it to be expected that immigration would create some economic disruption wherein new jobs are created alongside the loss of some jobs for U.S. workers? After all, haven't most economic changes benefited some while unfortunately hurting others? But let's get back to what Professor Perry has to say on these points. Professor Perry, I'm wondering if in your research you have found any situations where the introduction of immigrants has resulted in a loss of jobs for U.S. workers. When you look at uh, newspapers' stories, sometimes you read about specific companies that seem to have laid off some natives in order to replace them with immigrants. In reality, if you look at all the data, these are much less frequent cases and not very usual. Uh, Certainly, in some specific circumstances, there could be some companies which have uh, gone uh, to hire some uh, uh, immigrants, and this has generated some uh, displacement. But you have to look at it in a much more broader way. In particular, in many cases, uh, the fact that some immigrants come and take some occupation implies that in a dynamic way, American worker will take slightly different careers. So if uh, a company hires more immigrants in the role of technology and science, then young American will take careers in law, in business, in other, and economists say, complementary type of jobs. So very often, if you follow the effect of the inflow of immigrants, you see that Americans tend to then specialize and direct themselves towards other type of jobs. And in aggregate, this generates a positive productivity effect, allow company to hire immigrants on specific skills that they need, that they are specific and they are not easy to find sometimes, and allow other Americans to specialize in other skills. When you need a team of worker in a company, you can find some of these skills locally and in the U.S., but you will need to hire other from outside. So out of 10 workers, if you can hire three immigrants with special skills, then you can hire and value the productivity of other seven Americans who work with them and are highly productive. So if you look at the aggregate and if you look at all the effect, it's very rare that you find really a displacement. You find complementarity, you find uh, these effects of changing somewhat the career of American. But even when you look at local in economy, at cities, as we did with the data, we don't find that at the city level, more immigrants generate less employment for native. In fact, they they generate maybe specialization in somewhat different areas. 
Professor Perry provided us with a good framework for understanding the economic impact of immigrants to the U.S. At this point, it might be helpful for our listeners to focus on a case study. Tejas, let's turn to your recent interview of one of your clients. Absolutely, Kalpana. So I did interview one of my clients. What was remarkable about the interview is that I did not share any of Professor Perry's commentary with him in advance of the interview. However, so much of what he said was spot on and consistent with Professor Perry's feedback. Let's listen. Welcome, Dive Gulati. Thanks so much for joining us today for this podcast recording. You are one of the co-founders of ShipBob, a successful logistics company. Can you give us some more background about the company? It's a pleasure to be here, Tejas. Thanks for inviting me and giving me a platform to share the story. I'm Devay. I'm one of the co-founders of ShipBob, and ShipBob took off, and it's been a crazy journey since because it was an idea with two friends in an apartment, and now we are close to 500 employees scattered across the country. We work with small to mid-sized e-commerce merchants. So these are small businesses that have maybe one employee up to, I would say, 20 to 50 employees. So these are really small businesses who've invented a product or created a product and then successfully found this niche audience that actually likes that product. They're creating a brand for themselves. So think of this as the small business revolution 2.0. So initially, all these small businesses would come up with really crafty ideas and open a storefront. And will try to go and, let's say, have the product in Walmart's, Targets, or Whole Foods of the world. But now, because of rise of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, it's much easier to connect with your consumers. So these brands have actually started growing pretty dramatically over the past few years. So we're helping these e-commerce entrepreneurs grow even further because now we're solving for their logistics problem. So how does immigration, and specifically the H-1B program, benefit ShipBob in solving these logistics problems? The H-1B program benefits and has benefited us in a lot of ways. A, both the founders are immigrants. So H-1B helped us to at least stay in the country and then get the company started, which was great. And that H-1B visa gave us the American dream of even dreaming big enough to essentially start a company ourselves. And then... To this date, we are employing H-1B employees in very specific, highly technical roles. So mostly in technology and science, which is data science for us, and mathematics is also in data science. So within STEM, we're actually able to utilize a lot of folks graduating out of universities with a lot of work experience in the engineering and data science field. And that's where we have the most amount of, I would say, highly skilled labor on H-1Bs within the company. Yes, and it seems that you have anywhere from 5 to 10 H-1B workers at any given time. How is your company different from a run-of-the-mill warehouse or logistics company? One key differentiator between us and a warehouse in the middle of the country is the number of customers we're able to serve. These warehouses have existed for decades, if not centuries, and they've been dealing with entrepreneurs or business people who are shipping products. But what they do is they only typically work with the top, let's say, 100 e-commerce companies of the world because they just don't have the technology. So for them to scale, they onboard large customers, they customize their offering for these large customers. And that's why the big e-commerce companies, let's say, TommyHilfiger.com, Macy's.com, they were able to outsource very easily. But when me and my co-founder started our company, we just couldn't outsource the logistics because it was too hard for these warehouses to 
customize an offering for such a small company like ours. But with technology, what we did was we were able to automate a lot of this onboarding steps and we were able to onboard 500 new e-commerce merchants in any given quarter or any given month at least. So what that does is we've made the onboarding so simple through technology. So Dive, how difficult would it be for ShipBob to build and maintain this technology without access to highly skilled workers? I would say it's almost impossible. The very few resources in the fields that we are hiring for, these are highly technical skills and highly technical roles that we are hiring for. So we need to have that talent base to pull from for these roles. And it just happens to be that like even within the universities, a lot of these folks are immigrants or like international students who are really sharp. So we need that talent base to continue building and to even maintain what we've built in terms of analytical platform. That was a really interesting interview, Tejas. Both interviews suggest that the president's actions actually stifled innovation and caused more harm than benefit to the economy. President Trump had justified his proclamations barring immigrants in the wake of COVID-19 as measures to protect U.S. workers. The Northern California District Court's decision to block President Trump's 2020 proclamation acknowledges, though, some limitations on the scope of wide-ranging executive authority in this area. However, the limitations of presidential power over immigration based upon economic justifications has yet to appear before the U.S. Supreme Court. Thus, we don't know how this issue may one day ultimately be decided. And with the new Biden administration, we are unlikely to face this issue, at least not in the next few years. Well, certainly the arc of history appears to show repetition, and the actions taken by the Trump administration could be repeated in some form by a future administration with similar erroneous justifications. In our next episode, we're going to shift gears by focusing on DACA, and we'll explore the roots of the concept of deferred action. We'll interview two DACA recipients and Professor Shoba Wadia, a national authority on prosecutorial discretion and deferred action. Thanks once again for tuning in to Immigration Chats with Tejas and Kalpana. This podcast was produced by the team at Audio Muses. Special thanks to Allison E. Harker and Amitha Ganatra. Music from this podcast is from Audio Jungle. 